We're reading this morning's from Isaiah chapter 1 and starting at verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness, only wounds and bruises and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with oil. Your country is desolate, your cities burned with fire, your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Daughter Zion is left like a shelter in a vineyard, like a hut in a cucumber field, like a city under siege. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, we would have become like Sodom, we would have been like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord. I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and of fat, of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I am not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash and make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute. She once was full of justice. Righteousness used to dwell in her. But now, murderers. Your silver has become dross. Your choice wine is diluted with water. 
Your rulers are rebels, partners with thieves. They all love bribes. They chase after gifts. They do not defend the cause of the fatherless. The widow's case does not come before them. Therefore, the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the Mighty One of Israel declares, Ah, I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as in days of old, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterwards, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness, but rebels and sinners will both be broken and those who forsake the Lord will perish. You will be ashamed because of your sacred oaks in which you have delighted. You will be disgraced because of the gardens that you have chosen. You will be like an oak with fading leaves, like a garden without water. The mighty man will become tinder and his work a spark. Both will burn together with no one to quench the fire. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He will judge between the nations and will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is God's word. Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Matt Fuller. If we've not met some, not the most cheerful of readings, uh, but, um, well, that's what it says. And uh, we're going to work through it because there's great delights there as well. Am I somewhat in the um, bottom of a fish tank? Do you want to change mics? What do you want me to do? Happy? You're happy. Okay. Let me pray, and then we'll look at Isaiah 1 together. Almighty God, we thank you and praise you that you reveal yourself not just as power, but as love, not just as the Holy One, but the Holy One of Israel, one who says to his people, I'm your Father. And so, Father, we pray we'd listen to your words rightly, as the words of one who cares for us very much, and therefore that you'd work in us, you'd change our hearts so that we would respond rightly, we would not be stupid, rebellious children, but we will be righteous and bring delight to you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Isaiah will tell us that God is in the business of transformation. It's really what it's about, the whole book. I caught up with someone last week. I'd, I'd not seen them for a while. He used to be here at um, Christ Church. And uh, to be honest, I think, I don't want to be unkind, but I think when he was here, many would have said he was awkward, he was combative, he was adversarial, 
Uh, he was quite clean on having a row with you about um, anything. And um, it's quite hard work, and it was lovely catching up with him. And here was a man who was now delightful, gentle, humble, self-deprecating. And uh, a third party was there and said, golly, he's changed, hasn't he? Yeah, lovely to see, isn't it? Or marriage has changed him. Well, yes, it does have some impacts positively on many of us. But also time, and I'd say the grace of God. But that's what he's about. He's in the business of transformation. Or um, uh, Aram popped up in our prayers just then. I was reading in the week uh, again. It's quite hard to get these numbers accurate, but 1979, 500 known believers in the country of Iran. Now, depending who you, quite where you go for the stats, but it's certainly somewhere between half a million and a million believers in Iran. And more have become Christians in the last 20 years than the preceding 13 centuries. Wow. But then God is in the business of transformations. He can transform an individual's life. He can transform a nation. He'll transform the world. And not just fleeting transformations, of course, not just the, the, the brief impact of a home improvement that looks great and then fades, but lasting. And in really simple terms, the book of Isaiah, or 66 chapters of it, is the story of God's transformation of Zion, whatever that means. In the book of Isaiah, sort of shorthand for God's people. Zion, just one of the hills that Jerusalem appears on. In truth, it's a piddly little hill. It's not really a mountain at all. It's not up there with the Matterhorn or Everest or anything like that. If you've been there, it's a piddly little hill. But anyway, not geographically, but in terms of spiritual importance, Zion is a way of saying Jerusalem or a way of saying God's people. But on Isaiah, God takes this corrupt city that has drifted far, far from who it's meant to be and transforms it. So by the end of the book, it is glorious and righteous. And we see somewhat of that cycle uh, in this opening section in chapter 1, verse 1 to chapter 2 and verse 5. It's a big book, Isaiah. We started to look in, at some of it in the summer. It's one book, chapter 1, verse 1, the vision concerning Jude and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw. It's one book, this long book. The easiest way, I think, of thinking about Isaiah is the first 39 chapters are really the book of judgment, and then chapters 40 to 66, the book of comfort. I mean, that's a bit lazy, but there's some truth to that. In the middle is the uh, section we looked at in the summer, the pivot, chapters 36 to 39. And this term, we're going to spend uh, off and on a bit of time in chapters 1 to 12. One other comment, by way, before we really get going on it. Of course, it's an Old Testament book, and God's people here, they're in a different place to you and me. They're a different place well, geographically. All of God's people live in one area, one country, yes. Judah here at this point in time. Historically, uh, these kings, Uzziah, uh, Jotham, down to Hezekiah, it's about a 40-year stretch of time. What's going on, really, in the, from about 740 to about 701 BC? In 740 BC, the country's had decades of economic growth. Mm. Fantastic. 
uh, Uzziah's reign for 40 odd years. It's a bit like Queen Elizabeth, you know, when she goes, it's going to be a big deal. When Uzziah goes, it's a big deal. So you had this sort of economic boom and everyone's like, yeah, we're wealthy. We're cool. We're fantastic. Everything's great in the land of Judah. But then this big shadow emerges of Assyria, the global superpower or regional superpower that's going to invade. Well, not you and me, is it? We're not fearful, particularly of Syria invading us um, here in the UK. So there's a bit of a gap there, of course. But more importantly, there's a gap of salvation history because we now live this side of the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. That makes an enormous difference. We understand the truths of this book with a clarity, but also somewhat differently to the first audience. But essentially, the call will still be the same for you and me in the 21st century to live as transformed people who trust the Lord, trust in the salvation he offers in Jesus Christ, and live as transformed people. So this message of this first section we look at this morning really is just that stop living as corrupt people, live as faithful people, Or you might summarize it in chapter 2, verse 5. Here's the point of this section. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. That's the point. Walk in the light of the Lord. Let's look at the uh, the movement then. We basically go from a corrupt city in chapter 1, verses 2 to 20, to uh, a faithful city. I'm afraid I must have mistyped on there. Uh, The faithful city, chapter 1, verse 21, to chapter 2, verse 5. We'll work it out. But that's broadly the movement. We'll look at it in those two halves. The the, the corrupt city, what the problem was, and then what God's going to do about it to make them the faithful city. That's how we'll work it. Just those two then, but we'll break it down a little bit more. So let's first of all look at the corrupt city. What was the problem? In chapter 1, verses 2 to 20. Well, first of all, God's going to say, stop being silly, corrupt children. Verse 2, God summons the heavens and the earth. So you need some witnesses to what's going on here. So verse chapter 1, verse 2. Hear me, you heavens. Listen, earth. The Lord has spoken. I reared children and brought them up, but they've rebelled against me. So that's the fundamental problem. Oh, look, even the ox knows its master, the donkey knows its owner's manager, but Israel doesn't know, my people don't understand. An ox, not the most intelligent of creatures, but can see its master. A donkey recognizes, okay, I'm going to do what I'm told by the master. So God's people here, they are more stupid than an ox or a donkey. That's his point. Because they can't recognize that they belong to the Lord. So not the most encouraging of introductions. They're corrupt. Now, we don't get super, uh, we get more detail next week on this, what the corruption looked like in society. But verse 4 Woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They've forsaken the Lord, they've spurned the Holy One of Israel, they've turned their backs on Him. Children given to corruption. But you see, what if you picked it up as uh, Connie read it? Rebelling against the Lord for them is an act of well, self-harm. Verse 5, why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted from, from the sole of your foot to the top of your head. There's no soundness, only wounds and bruises. It, 
what are you doing? You're like a boxer who's gone 10 rounds in the ring and his eyes are sort of so swollen, he can't see out of either of them. There's blood pouring from everything. He's limping, he's got broken ribs. And you say to him, stop fighting. And he says, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'll go again, I'm fine. And you think, no, what are you doing? Why would you put yourself through that pain? And that's what God is saying. Why, why are you rebelling against me when it hurts you? Clearly, Isaiah at this point is writing, there's been an invasion, probably in the um, 734 BC is probably the reference. But verse 7, your country's desolate. Your city's burned with fire. Your fields are being stripped by foreigners right before you, laid waste as when overthrown by strangers. Your rebellion has meant that you're being, you've been invaded and you're on your knees. Why would and yet you persist in rejecting me? I mean, stop complicating. His point here is, look, your sin is really stupid. I guess the picture is a little bit like this. You can imagine uh, one day at home, uh, mum and dad uh, and their three toddlers. Mum and dad are out in the garden doing some gardening. And, um, but all of a sudden, the toddlers say, stuff them. And they shut the door. They're quite intelligent. They stand on one another's shoulders. They, they shut the door. They, they lock it. They stuff a load of Play-Doh in all the locks. And so no keys can get in. And they say, we're in charge. And mum and dad bang on the window and say, what do you think you're doing? And they say, stuff you. We're in charge. And they march around the house, very pleased with themselves that they're in charge. And their parents knock gently on the window and they throw stickle bricks uh, and Lego at uh, the glass in their sort of defiant act of rebellion. And uh, they, they rummage through all the cupboards and they eat all the sweets. And then they get a bit hungry. So they eat all the cereals. And then they're a bit hungry and they don't know what to do. And so they're hungry. And then the temperature changes, like it's going to do tonight, and autumn finally arrives. And um, they're cold. And they don't know what to do. And they don't understand. You have to clean things. So they never clean anything. So they get filthy. So they don't care for themselves in any way like they should do. So they get sick. And so then they sit on the floor thinking, well, we're sick and hungry and cold. And mum and dad are knocking on the glass. And they still say, no, go away. We don't need you. And that's just stupid. And God says to his people here, you're more stupid than a donkey. Why are you being stubborn? Why would you persist in your rebellion when it's hurting you? Why would you do that? Rejecting God? Even as Christians, for those of us who are Christians here, our sin is stupid. It harms us. Why would we persist in doing it? The funny thing is even some secular studies are now beginning to recognize this. There's a whole sort of industry in this, but um, one professor at Harvard in the School of Public Health, Tyler Vandervel, he's written it quite extensively on this, but now it's entered the public consciousness because you know, these things get picked up by popular newspapers. So a big article a little while back in USA Today was given the headline, Religion, excuse me, Religion May Be the Miracle Drug. What? Well, he says, you just can't ignore the data. 
Church attendance reduces mortality rates by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period. People live longer if they go to church. Churchgoers have increased optimism, less likely to uh, divorce. They're more self-controlled. They have greater purpose in life. By any criteria, they're happier. Now, you might sit here and think, golly, I don't feel any of those things. Yeah, but they're worse outside. That's the problem. <laughs> wow. There's plenty of studies that replicate this. It's not actually disputed very much. Even the sort of aggressive atheists, the sort of Stephen Pinkers of the world, would say, yeah, but it's just like being a drunk man. A drunk man's happy, uh, but they're stupid. Because drunk people have, you know, there's no argument against it. Actually, living God's way just makes you happier. No great surprise, because sin is stupid. It's an act of self-harm, says the Lord. So for you and me, in very simple terms, we're fools to think we're better off without the Lord. And when we trust ourselves over him, we become less. Any toddler who trusts their parents to do what's right for them, I mean, overwhelmingly, you're going to achieve more if you listen to your parents, than if you rebel against them age four. So look, they're corrupt children. That's the first part of the corrupt city. Uh, but then, at more length, there's this sort of meaningless religion that uh, clearly the language goes up a gear in verses 10 to 20. And there's meaningless religion of the corrupt city. So verse 10, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? says the Lord, I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams, and the fat, the fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. You get the tone of this, don't you? God says, oh, just sick of it. All your church activity, I'm just fed up. Now, be careful. Nothing wrong with the religious activity of, for them in the Old Testament, offering sacrifices that they'd been told to do it. But it's doing that, going through the motions of religious activity while living immorally. It's hypocrisy that he's attacking. So verse 12, what's wrong? When you come to appear before me, who's asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? So you come on Sunday, but on Monday you're immoral. That's no good. Verse 13, again, stop bringing your meaningless offerings, your incense is detestable to me, your new moon Sabbaths, your convocations, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies, your new moon feasts, your appointed festivals, I hate them with all my being. They've become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. When, even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Why? Verse 15, Excuse me, end of verse 15, your hands are full of blood. Verse 16, you're doing evil deeds. Verse 17, there's no justice. The poorest in society are left and dumped upon. It's quite strong, the language, isn't it? Verse 13, your religious activity, meaningless. Verse 13, 
worthless. How does the Lord feel about it? Verse 14, I hate. I am weary. Verse 15, I am not listening to you. It's as if God appears and says, look, I hate it. I hate it if you come to church on a Sunday, but on a Monday you're abusive to your staff. I hate it. Don't come. Can't bear your hypocrisy. I despise it. When you sort of look through what you're doing and you feel quite pleased with yourself about your financial giving, but you're looking at porn, I despise it. I can't bear it. I'm fed up of you leading Bible studies, but you ignore corruption going on in your own firm. It's quite strong, isn't it? And you and I feel a little bit awkward. But we can't escape that God's holiness is a serious business. We can't bear it if his people are one thing on a Sunday, but something else in the week. Yet what an offer. I mean, you get the point, don't you? Any religion, says the Lord, that leaves immorality unchallenged, he hates it. He hates it. Any church activity which isn't leading to transformation to lives more like Jesus Christ, he's not interested. And yet alongside that, you get this extraordinary offer. Verse 18. Come. Come now. Let us settle the matter, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they're as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. It's an extraordinary offer. Verse 16, he said, look, you need to wash and make yourselves clean. But verse 18, he says, look, only I can wash you. The only way that your blooded hands, the red scarlet blood on your hands can disappear is if I wash you. We don't often get snow in London anymore. Maybe global warming, etc., etc. Maybe a while before we see it again, or maybe we get lots more of it. I get confused. Uh, sometimes about what the impact will be in, in the long term. But um, we don't get much at the moment. But when you do, if you get some snow and you get up early, it is lovely, isn't it? Or on your holidays, you go and you're there for the snow and perhaps you might even sit on a chairlift and slowly drift up a mountainside and all you can see is just white. Oh, it is beautiful. And here the Lord says, you're covered, you're red. Blood's quite hard to get out of anything. But I'm going to turn it white. It's a miracle to turn something that's red, white, like that. The picture is, of course, of 100% cleansing, 100% forgiveness. And as we've sung, that is the work of Jesus dying in our place to take our scarlet sins upon himself and give us his pure whiteness of moral character. That's his work of the cross. All that's required of you and me is repentance. Verse 19. Recognize who God is. If you're willing and obedient, 
You'll eat the good things of the land. If you resist and rebel, you'll be devoured by the sword. Strange picture. You can either be forgiven and eat good things, or you'll be eaten by the sword. So it's a strong word to the corrupt city, the corrupt children, and the Lord despises their meaningless religion. But what a wonderful offer, verses 18 to 20. Maybe you and I need to hear that. Maybe you need to hear that, particularly if you're burdened by, I don't know, some simple behavior of the past. Once it's confessed, the blood is gone and you're white. Jesus deals with it. That offer is always there. Come says the Lord. Let your sins be washed away. That's the corrupt city. They're in a pretty grim condition. And we get a bit more detail on the actual sort of justice elements of it uh, uh, next week and the week after. But broad brush, that's where they're at, the corrupt city of uh, Zion, God's people. But the Lord's work is to turn them into a faithful city. Chapter 1, verse 21 to chapter 2, verse 5. Slightly negative to begin with. Here, the picture's here that the, uh, the pure has become corrupted, verse 21. See how the faithful city has become a prostitute, a wife's become a prostitute. She was once full of justice, righteousness used to dwell in her, but now murderers. Silver has become dross. Quality wine's been diluted down. So you see, all these things have been corrupted, is the point. The leaders are culpable, verse 23. So verse 24, therefore the Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, oh, I will vent my wrath on my foes, I'll avenge myself on my enemies. But verse 25 is a bit surprising. I'll turn my hand against you, yes, but I will clean you again. Verse 25, I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. Verse 22, your silver has become dross, I'll take away your dross, your wine diluted down, I will make it pure again. Wow. There'll be new leadership, verse 26. And crucially, what is a city of prostitutes, verse 21, will once again become, verse 26, a city of righteousness, a faithful city. What is evident becomes evident in, as Isaiah rumbles on here is that here's a prediction. The corrupt city of Zion, it would be invaded. God's people, Jerusalem, God's people of Judah would be invaded. And it would be devastating. But through the devastation and destruction, what would last would be their beauty. So we just, once it's tangential, but what we're going to see in Isaiah is there's a corrupt people. They're going to be judged but after that, they're going to emerge transformed, glorious, and they will then transform the world. That's the whole movement of the book, which we start to see in overview here. For you and me, what does that mean? Here's the pledge for Judah. You will be invaded, and that will purge away dross and impurities. Destruction and desolation will fall upon you. For you and me... Well, here's one of those points we have to say, we live this side of the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Therefore, we say destruction, judgment fell upon him. 
So we're not waiting for that to happen upon you and me if you're a Christian. We are those who have had our sins washed clean, as white as snow. And so now, well now slowly the Lord will transform us. He'll purge us of our sins. He is about the work of transformation for you and me now. Oh, the New Testament would say it's, we're transformed by the renewing of our minds as we dwell upon the Scriptures, Romans 12, or 2 Corinthians 3, we're transformed as we dwell upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, or indeed we're transformed and our dross is removed through the trials of life. It, but he is about that work now. It's a wonderful promise because God says, I will. Verse 25, I will purge away your dross. I will restore. I will. Again, the only condition is verse 27, that you repent. Funny translation, penitence. It just means if you repent, those who repent will become people of righteousness. So for those of us who are Christians, I say be encouraged. Again, the Lord is about his work of Transformation of removing your dross. And for myself, I need that encouragement. You know, when sometimes there's little progress in your life, you can't see how you've grown as a Christian. You still have certain patterns that are the same and have been for years. Be encouraged. The Lord is about his work of refining, changing, removing the impurities, getting rid of your sin. He's only finished in heaven, but he is about that work now. Be encouraged. A transformed people, and they will produce a transformed world as we finish. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. A transformed Zion, or God's people, produce a transformed world. So verse 2, in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Well, again, Zion itself is a pity little hill, but in terms of its importance, it transforms the world. Again, for us now, it's not the city of Jerusalem, it's God's people will transform the world. Jesus says to his believers, to his followers, Matthew chapter 5, you, you are a city upon a hill. You're the light that shines out. And it's the picture here, you know, that, that the nations will gather at Jesus Christ. They'll come to Jesus Christ. His word goes out, verse 3, the law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and people will come in from all over the world. I'd look around with a little demonstration of that. I smile as I look at our ministry interns this year from Brazil, from Malaysia, from Ghana, from Peru, from Surrey, um, and the Midlands. But um, amazing. It's just a little picture. For us here, in different countries originally, brought to Jesus Christ, a city upon a hill, is how Jesus would call us. And so the point is live distinctively. Live as 
God's people have been transformed. Or chapter 2, verse 5, walk in the light of the Lord. The picture is you know, a forest in dark at night, and there's just one path that someone's carved out, and has kindly stuck lanterns all along the path. Walk that path. Walk along that path. And you'll hear others in the undergrowth, and you can call to them and say, come and walk this path. It's better on this path. You're saved on this path. You're transformed on this path. Sort of the picture of it. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. So what you have at the beginning of Isaiah in one sense is a little, here's where we're going to go. Here is a corrupt city, God's people, and I'm going to allow them to be judged. I'm going to purge them so they become a righteous people. And they'll attract the world to them. And this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, there's a corrupt people. That's what all of us are naturally. And the Lord says, your judgment fell upon Christ. And so if you come to him, he will turn your sins, which are red, as white as snow. And you should live as transformed people. And the nations will stream to Jesus Christ and live as a city upon a hill. Live, walk in the light of the Lord. So as I would say, put aside your stupid sin. It's an act of self-harm. Put aside your meaningless religion. God hates it. Live as those whose scarlet sins have been washed as white as snow. Live as transformed people. Let's pray together. Our great God and Father, we pray that we'd hear your word rightly this morning. We'd hear rightly your strong condemnation of the stupidity of sin, of how you are not listening to us if we're engaged hypocritically in religious activity, but not living as transformed people. We pray we'd hear your strong word against sin, but also hear your wonderful words of encouragement that you can take the filthiest of sins and wash them clean. That for your people now, for Christians who have put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you continue to change us, purge us, make us more like him. So Father, with those words of hope, would we live that way? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.